Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I mean, we're almost at the one-year anniversary. I mean, we're like literally a couple of days away from it. And so I just want to say thank you at the top of the show for everyone who supported, everyone who has downloaded, subscribed, shared with their friends. I mean, this has been an amazing ride. And today's episode is even doper because I know a lot of my friends watch The Wire. And I have a lot of new friends, including myself, who watch Bosch on Amazon. And today we have none other than Marla. You know who I'm talking about, Jamie Hector. But before we get to Jamie, I wanted to talk about this mayor's race in New York City because after the first round of voting, Brooklyn Borough President, I'd say that three times fast, Brooklyn Borough President, looks like he's probably going to be the next mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. In case you missed it, this past Tuesday, New Yorkers went to the ballot box to select their future local leadership. That included the Democratic primary for mayor. And after the first round of ranked choice voting, look, I'm not going to try to explain to you what ranked choice voting is. Hell, I don't really even know what it is. I just know you put five people on the ballot. Don't know how you add it up, but hey, that's for New York to figure out. Adams was the top vote getter after election day with almost 32% of the vote. The next closest vote getter is my friend Maya Wiley, who received 22% of the vote. And with ranked choice voting, the vote will continue to see who has the most second choice. And most people believe that Adams will likely prevail, though Maya Wiley or Catherine Garcia could make things interesting. If Adams wins, which looks likely, I think there are a few clear messages that we should be mindful of. First, Adams made a point last night in his victory speech that I wanted to share. He said, and I quote, social media does not pick a candidate. People on social security pick a candidate. I don't care about what people tweet. I care about the people I meet on the street. What Adams did and what I hope more politicians do and understand is that the base of the Democratic Party and our elections, as I've said before, is my mama and her friends. And Adams leveraged a black and brown working class coalition that is and always will be the base of the Democratic Party in today's elections, but also in places like South Carolina and in many of your congressional races and so forth. You don't win if they don't vote for you and they watch TV, check the mail and talk to you at the door. But guess where they're not? On Twitter. Adams never wavered from his base and they delivered for him. Second, Adams is a former NYPD officer. And he's not meant words about the need for more robust enforcement of violent gun crimes. He's also been a vocal proponent of police reform measures, not abolition or defunding the police budget. But the truth is, as we saw this week in Biden administration's announcements around gun violence, violent crimes is ravaging communities around the country. And the majority of voters want to hear how you'll solve the crime and they want you to lead with policing. They want to hear reform items, too. But that's not the main course. And Adams reminded us that you have to make the main thing the main thing. And for many voters, that's a police first conversation and then reform. And Democratic voters across very liberal and progressive New York City said that public safety was their top issue. And public safety meant tell me what you're going to do to equitably police my neighborhood. There's a lot to take away from the Adams victory. And at the top of the list for me is how a plain speaking candidate that didn't have the polish or fancy degrees connected with the base of the Democratic Party on what mattered, and he ignored at times and antagonized at times progressives and the online chattering class. 
Every election is different, but the lessons in round one from New York City is a clear one for my political friends. And that's to spend more time playing bingo and talking to my mama and her friends. Get your ass off Twitter. And the best approach on policing is a balance of enforcement and reform, especially when your base is working class black and brown folks. And that's that on that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Man, welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I got a special guest, man. I'm just excited to have Mr. Jamie Hector here with me today. What's going on, my brother? How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Bakari. How about yourself, man? Thanks for having me. Man, for sure. I'm glad to be here, man. You know, we start each one of our shows the same way. We like our guests to walk us through the arc of their career. And you've played a wide range of roles, but talk to me about how you broke into your first notable television role and why you decided to become an actor? Well, breaking into my first notable television role, if I can remember, it was the beat. Now, when we're talking about a role, we're talking about for an actor, it doesn't matter the size of the role. Correct. It's really um, what you bring to that role. So it was a show called The Beat. And it was on, I believe, UPN. Um, what's my guy's name that played Incredible Hulk? Oh. Um... Are you thinking of Mark Ruffalo? Mark Ruffalo. Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Thank you, Kaya. There we go. We're going to use Kaya's voice, too, from heaven above. <laughs> Mark Ruffalo, correct. So I had a scene with him, man. I walked into an audition room, man. I was excited about it. And this was my entrance into the game. And it was a Rastafarian. And I went home and I listened to Bob Marley cassette tape over and over again. I started talking to my boys that were Caribbean. And I was talking, like, yo, my Wagwan Regen. Bedrin, I was saying, Bedrin, why I go on Bedrin? Why I do Bedrin? Where we go on there? And, 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 and he was like, first and foremost, it's not Bedrin, it's, it's Bedrin. <laughs> so I started shadowing my guys that were of Caribbean descent, um, Jamaican. And then also, you know, I, I grew up, my parents are from Haiti as well. So I also have that, 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 that element of that vibe in me also. So dancing to dance, talk, walking to walk, talking to talk. And, Went into the audition room and I walked out with the party. Mm. So, you know, they had me in the middle of 14th Street, a very displaced individual, just jumping all over the place. And then Mark Ruffalo comes to arrest me. And then we have a conversation, et cetera. And it was just really fun. It was embracing. It was me having an opportunity in that small role to bring everything that I've learned in the theater company that I was a part of since 16 years old. That's when I started. I cut my teeth on stage to training at Strasbourg and William Esper, I was able to just funnel all of that into that part. And that was truly exciting. So to answer your question, for me, it started on stage. Then it led me into working on screen. I've spoken to a few actors who, who started on stage. So I'll ask you this question. I mean, how does stage prepare you for TV? Which one do you enjoy most? And what is the difference for you? I mean, I guess on stage, you get that immediate gratification. It's like playing in front of the audience where they can cheer or jeer, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, so you get that immediate gratification. But for you, what's the difference? And which do you like the best? Well, I love all mediums, man. It's not, 
there's nothing that's better to me than the other because, you know, you have a chance to create. The difference with stage and film and television, you actually see the work right there in front of you. On film and television, you have to edit it. And to quote Al Pacino, you know, a stage production is like walking on a tightrope. Mm-hmm. And then you're walking from there to there and you fall, you fall, you know. But on television, you get a chance to constantly recreate it. I love all mediums, um, but there's something about stage that just prepares you, especially Shakespeare, that just prepares you for the work. It's like the, like training against LeBron, you know? Mm, yeah. When it's time for you to play, you're going to be ready for yeah. Jordan, right? You're going to be ready because you put in that work, that constant repetition, that analysis of the character and the overall play. So I love stage work. It, it's just something that you got to dedicate your full time to. I ask every actor that comes onto the show this, what goes in your t- decision to take on a new project or a new role? And have there been any roles that you were, that were presented to you that you turned down that you wish you would have taken? Wow. What goes into the project? Yeah, I mean, and, and do, is it like the the your agents are like, man, this is some BS, and they toss it aside? I mean, do you read all of them? What makes you what makes you take something that you or make what makes you decline something? What's that process like? No, it's do I root for the character? Hmm. I I, I want to root for the character. I want to feel for the character. I want to see the character win, even if it's not mine. It's just a, a real quick example. There was a project that was sent to me. It was about a football player. And this football player was one of the greatest. He was going to be successful. And then something happened. He drove off a cliff and he ended up dying. But the, the legacy, what he left behind, the kind of person that he was, I called my eight. I love the story. I love how it was written. I love that character. I was rooting for him. I wanted to see him win. And I enjoyed it so much. I told him, listen, if I have to carry water, if I have to be the water boy, I'll, I'll consider it because I just want to be a part of the project because it was mm. amazing. Even though my preference is always the lead, but just to be a part of something great also, understanding that it's just something that's original, something uh, I'm rooting for this guy. I want to see this guy win or this guy win. And I want to be a part of it. Before we get to Bosch, all of my listeners, of course, and I'm sure you get this all the time, they want to talk about The Wire and Marlo Stanfield. How did you come upon that role and why did you take that? Because you, I mean, you had to see something or believe in something that would, I say, undoubtedly be the best TV that we've ever seen in the history of television. And I just want everybody to know who's listening that if y'all think The Sopranos was the best TV ever, The Sopranos, <laughs> the season, the, the finale of that was just pure garbage. Uh, and so that <laughs> that is the reason that The Wire is the number one show in all of television history. So I, I'm, I just have to throw that out there, man. I hear you, man. We had to cover all bases, you know. We had a Listen, we, we, the bar was high, right? We had to cover all bases and uh, Little Baltimore doing the work that we could, right? Um, the, how, did, how did they come to you with that role? I mean, what, what, made, what made you take? That seems like an easy role to take, though, but I, what do I know? Well, let me, let me say this. Let me start off by saying this. It's not really what made me take it. It's as a working actor for the most part. <laughs> we tend to come to us, you know, in the beginning, right? It's, it's not really a choice. It's like, oh, wow, they want us. And this is HBO and this is quality work. You know, this is something that I can I can actually sit down and watch and not be embarrassed or, mm. you know, my future kids can watch it and say, oh, that's that's my dad, you know, and it's transformation into a different character. Right. So just to set it off in that direction, it wasn't me choosing to take it or not take it. It was presented to me and through an audition process. 
they reached out. No, okay, you know what? I really wanted to break into television and especially a show that I wanted to. So my manager at the time, I was in a short film called Five Deep Breaths, 22 minute film. If you have a chance, go on YouTube, you can catch it. It's called Five Deep Breaths, directed by Steve Main, right? Yeah. And I was the lead, took me around the world, Sundance, Cannes, et cetera. That project right there was a vehicle for me. So my manager saw it, she saw the wire, she saw the moment where Michael B. Jordan's character was shot. She said, mm-hmm. I gotta watch this. I watched it, caught my attention, reached out to Alexa Fogel, and we did something that was never done, right? That was always done, but not done anymore. Instead of trying to ship this VHS tape to her, she went down there, knocked on the door, called him, presented it to him, and he watched it, called Alexa. They called me in the room, and it was just audition after audition after audition. I auditioned for Cuddy, I auditioned for Wood Harris's role. Of course, he already had that role. But and then it was just um, gone from there. Are you surprised at how much of an impact the wires had on television? Or did you and the cast know at the time that you were all doing something special that would have a lasting impact on audiences and the culture? The wire is going to be remembered forever. Wow. We always knew we were doing something special for us. In other words, we enjoyed what we were doing. Right. And we knew that it was special. Would, did we understand the world was going to receive it like that? Um, no, absolutely not. It's like lightning in a bottle, right? Mm-hmm. You create something and you give it everything you have. You know, zeitgeist, right? People put everything together. They mm-hmm. just put everything together. And then the director, the producers, the executive producers, and the cast and directors bring the right actors together as well, as well as the writing. And then it just hit. And thank God that people were consistent. But so did we know? No, but we knew for us, though. That, yeah, people, that is, that's true. I think the word you use, consistent. That, that was, there was consistency in the greatness that was played. Marlowe was voted as the number two television villain of all time by Rolling Stone. And everybody has an opinion about Marlowe. Did you feel at any point that you played the role so well that you'd be typecasted into similar roles? Absolutely. Absolutely. How do you, how do you break out of that? Other than you just being you and saying, I ain't, I ain't doing that. Nah, man, that's the reason why, I, you know, I went with John Singleton, right? And John Singleton said to me, so he reached out to my people and he said, listen, I'm going to meet with him at a cafe. And we sat down and he said, um, he said, hey, you know, I thought that they just plucked you off the block. He says, not until I saw your interview. Right. And I realized and, I, and if you notice, I always say something like Lee Strasberg or William Esper or he said, it's not until I saw your interview and I realized that you were a trained actor that I was like, hold up, we got to meet and I might want him to work on a project. So it was intentional, right? That strategy of constantly making sure that everyone knows that I do this for real. I mean, I enjoy diving into a character and, and, you know, understanding what makes him tick. That's my thing. So because I thought I was going to be typecast, I made an effort to really let the world know yeah. that I really Let's talk Bosch. What it's about and who is Jerry Edgar? Ah, Jerry Edgar is a homicide detective. <laughs> smooth cat, right? <laughs> hey, smooth, right? He loves, listen, he loves his fragrance. He loves his suits. He loves, he loves what you have in the backdrop right there. Would you live, how you live right there is how Jay Edgar would live, right? My wife, my wife. That means he gonna, he gonna, have, a, he gonna have a meticulous woman in his life. That's what I got. Yeah, yeah. and as you see, that's the case because, you know, he lost his wife, he divorced. He has his two boys. He loves his cause, loves, but he also loves the work. And he also loves, he's dedicated to his victims. 
and making sure that there's closure that comes to their case, right? And he's a partner to Harry Bosch, um, which is one of the best dog detectives out there also that's really fighting for the victims as well. So Jerry Edgar is a, is a detective that, that just is, he loves the work. He loves doing the work. He loves his ladies as well. You know? <laughs> he does. It's, that's what really brought him down a hole that he tends to be in sometimes. But this season here, he's just going through a dilemma, trying to get out of it. It's the longest running original series on Amazon and the most successful series. So first, just cheers to you. I mean, it's like everything you touch is going to be successful. I hope you uh, that's the premium price tag, though. Don't don't come knocking on his door without that premium price tag. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to pay him what they paying the white boys out there. But I digress. Uh, but what what is it about the show that you think has attracted such a loyal fan base? Well, it's honesty and consistency. And the fact that it covered all bases without trying to, like, um, sugarcoat it. You know, um, it's it's telling a story of, he's not just a detective. It's not really that he's a detective. He's a man. He's a man, Harry Bosch, that is, a man that's dealing with so many different struggles that he has to address. And the premise and the central focus of this show which is words that he lives by is everybody counts or nobody counts. Mm-hmm. And you see that flush throughout the entire season of seven shows, seven se- throughout all the shows of seven seasons. And that's important because I think everyone wants to know that they count, you know? Yeah. People are involved in all areas of things in life because they want to know that I count, I exist. You know, show me some attention, you know, even if you're dead. I mean, it, you got young actors out there listening and people who want to just pack up and move to Hollywood and move to New York or or go to film school or, or go to acting school. But you've been in two incredibly successful television shows. In your experience, what would you tell them is the key ingredients to making these things work? I mean, both, you know, from your perspective and, and just overall. It's, I don't think it's one. I think it's a combination of many, right? For me, my foundation is in prayer, right? But... You know, prayer without works is dead. That's what they say in the book of James. There it goes, right? So so I was doing all of that, but at the same time, training, and at the same time, out there pursuing the work. I'm a Brooklyn boy, right? And when I went and I started studying and training at Strasbourg, they said, you can only do this. You can't go out there and find work. But I came from a place where it's like, you got to plant your seeds and do the work, right? So I was out there planting seeds consistently and reading and staying in the work, but also seeking the work. And I think that's important to know to do. do not, don't let anybody just do it for you because you try to do that and it's not going to be done right. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In your your platform as a, as a black actor, do you feel any pressure in the roles you take on? Or the roles you you don't take on, like a you know, I, I guess one of the better examples is probably like a, a BAPS or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of the issues you may or may not speak on. How do you how do you find that balance of bringing your true self unapologetically to Hollywood? Because it seems like some people either push that aside or don't play that role at all. 
Hmm. Well, the pressure that I feel is dedication to the character, mm. right? There are a lot of roles that I won't take, right? Because I don't want to perpetuate certain things. But if the role in the overall story is um, worth telling, the work that's going to be, it's going to require a lot of my time, my energy, my mind, you know, my spirit. It's just going to require a lot of me. So the pressure that I have is to actually execute it and do it to its best and present it to the world. And hopefully it'll inspire. I mean, sometimes maybe it won't, you know, sometimes. Because one thing that I did realize, and I hope I'm not getting off the subject, one thing I did realize moving into the wire and working on it was playing, and while playing Marlo, that it's not just about me. Mm-hmm. It was the overall story, right? So once I realized that it wasn't just about Marlo Stanfield or Jamie Hector, it was the mayor, it was the governor, it was String Bell, it was Foxdale, it was, you name it, it was Bodie, it was the mm-hmm. fourth season being of the, ch- the kids, right? I realized really quickly, and it took a minute though, so it wasn't quick, that it's not just about me, so even though I'm playing this role that I hope does not steer my young black boys down the wrong path, I realized they can actually look at the entire story in its context and say, oh, this is, this is how it turns out too at the end for the boy. Correct. Correct. Whole squad. Yeah. I mean, that's important. You talk about your spirit, spirituality a, a lot. How do you find that balance between your spirituality and, and acting and, and what keeps you grounded at home? How, do, how does that work? Because you are, I mean, you, you are it. I mean, you're one of the best actors in the world. And mm-hmm. so how do, you, how do you stay grounded? What is that like? Well, you said the book of James. <laughs> Five o'clock in the morning, on my knees. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Scripture. And my wife would smack me up too if I get out of pocket. Oh, you, that, that's important. I think we we got that in common. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and if she don't do it, then my daughter gonna she'll do it. Or my son, he'll shake me up. You know, that's why I understand that. Also, that they're paying close attention. Uh, I mean, everybody, their eyes are watching you. You know, one of the questions that I was thinking about as I was you know scripting this out is. After doing the wire, I actually went back and watched a couple episodes just because I, I it's not like I needed a reason to, but but I, I was doing it in preparation for the day. But after doing the wire and giving given all the success, and then looking at Bosch, did you feel like Bosch had the ingredients, so to speak, to be to to have the type of success that it's had? I mean, when you first saw it, when you after your first uh after your first season, did you think you would be here at season seven, I believe? Well, I didn't know I'd be here for season seven, but I knew it had the ingredients because it's good. I mean, it's 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 captivating. You know, it's a it's a it's quality TV, which we don't have a lot of anymore. Yeah. You know, they take their time. Think about the combination of people. Um, Think about the people that were put together to actually create this. Right. Eric Overmeyer, playwright. Amazing. The Wire. Writer on The Wire as well. Right. Showrunner. Bosch. Michael Connolly. 22, 23. New York. Times bestsellers, all Bosch, right? That those two alone. Then you bring in Titus Weller. Then you bring in Lance Reddick. Then you bring in Amy Aquino. Then you bring in Jamie Hector. Then you bring in Natty. And then you combine all of these individuals, and you bring this force together, right? The writing, the acting, then the directors, Ernest Dickerson, Juice. Mm-hmm. Come on, Ernest Dickerson. He was cleaning up, you know. Then you bring in these elements. And then you might have an ingredient for something great, which, thank God, I feel like we did and we do. 
That is, I mean, when you think about it like that, y'all made y'all made gumbo. Y'all probably <laughs> that that budget probably stupid. It was expensive gumbo, but y'all made <laughs> y'all y'all made some quality gumbo. Uh, where can yeah. where when can our listeners catch the final season of Bosch, and how can they watch it? Yeah, uh, you can catch the final season of Bosch June twenty fifth, season seven. Powerful number now, um, and you can watch it on Prime Video. What actors growing up did you look up to? You know, The Godfather. Denzel. <laughs> uh, you know, I thought you were cool. about to say, I thought you were about to say Richard Pryor. I'm watching a ton of Richard Pryor on TV uh, right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Richard Pryor, he's a beast. But you know, it's funny. He's an actor. But before I would even see Richard Pryor as an actor, which I do 100%, I, I laugh before I even get a first oh, yeah. he's a com- He's a comedian before he's an actor. That's, that's, that's correct. Great comedian. So... I, you know, I love drama, right? So it's 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 Denzel, it's 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 Don Cheadle, it's um, uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. You can't sleep on a Don. Don Cheadle is, and Daniel Day Lewis. You know, um, come on, that's my guy also. So, but you were saying Don Cheadle, yeah, you know, it's like individuals yeah. like that that you see. What was it, Hotel Rwanda? Um, you know, and then you turn around and you watch him on The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> that's versatile I was talking to somebody the other day about how we don't give Forrest Whitaker his flowers he's one of the I think he's one of the greatest greatest actors of all time yeah and you know we don't judge you based on your accolades right but the world gave him his flowers because he got an Oscar right because it's shown and proven Forrest yeah. Whitaker is one of the best out here doing it no it's so, no question there's yeah. no question before I, before we go, I wanted to talk to you about Moving Mountains, the nonprofit that you founded. Why did you start Moving Mountains, and what is this? What's the mission of that organization? Well, started Moving Mountains in 2007 because I was a part of a theater company called Tomorrow's Future Theater Company. I was 16, 17 years old, changed my life. You know, it's that moment when you step into that place when you're like, "This is where I belong." So that was my experience. But then moving forward, it changed my life because. It introduced me to original production, original pieces, um, dance, vocal, drama, et cetera. Then fast forward, I leave. I go and I work um, on The Wire. Mm-hmm. Come back. I used to also mentor and tutor young kids in Brooklyn also. Mm. And I was a mentor. I mean, I, I had a whole, I taught martial arts and drama, right? Free of charge. So now when I came back, one of the students looked and he basically said, hey, that's how we do it. You become successful and you just dip. At that moment, I knew I had to start something. So we created Moving Mountains. And it's basically focused on developing skills, talents, ability in youth while building character. We provide Mm -hmm. drama, dance, vocal, and filmmaking um, to young kids between the ages of 8 and 21, free of charge. How can people support you in that mission? Because I think that, you know, a lot of times people don't get the credit they deserve for the work that goes unseen because people may see Jamie Hector, but they don't know the work you do back home building up young men. So oh, how can people and help women. support and women. men and women, men and women? How can they how can they support uh, moving mountains? Well, one donation, because we do pay the staff location, et cetera. And that's Moving Mountains, www.movingmountainsnyc.org. But even more than that, you know, pray for the organization. And at the same time, if you can lend support by, um, you know, there's so many ways to donate by reaching out. But right now, overall, because we have everything in place, mm-hmm. with this consistent need, 
to provide the services and the resources to the youth through um, through access of finance and you know donate. Donate is a good way. My last question to you. Um, I think it's an important one, but you got a lot of young actors sitting at home. I got a lot of young black actors that want to be the next uh, Jamie Hector. Uh, mm. What what are the steps? How do they order their steps? What are some of the guiding principles that you can leave them with as they listen to the Bakari Sellers podcast today? Absolutely. Um, hone your relationships. Mm. Build your relationships. Relationships is obviously the network of life. Also, hone your craft. Don't sleep. I mean, you know, it's like a fast food market out here where everything seems like it comes Easy, and you don't really have to do much, to, but you're going to earn it when you know what you're doing on set and when that director gives you the most difficult direction. <laughs> <laughs> or the most simple, and you have to know how to tap into something deeper than yourself mm-hmm. to retrieve it. And also, you know, just, just be consistent. Have that drive and that focus at least give it, give yourself and your business at least eight hours a day, four hours at least, you know, but treat it like you really want to, you really want it, you really need it. I think those steps right there, that are focused and determination will get you to where you want to be. Man, I just want to say thank you for some time. This has been a gem. You, one of the words that, that I'm going to write down that stuck with me because you said it probably eight times in this interview is consistency. Oh, yeah. And I think I, I think that's something that we can all focus on when, you know, being a husband or a father, mm-hmm. lawyer or whatever it may be, being consistent day in and day out is so important. Jamie Hector, thank you so much for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. Y'all check out the, the final season of Bosch on Amazon, certainly. Yes, indeed. Bakari, thank you, brother. Appreciate Peace, it. Peace, my brother. Thank you, man. Thank you again for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. I'm actually sitting next to Spider-Man. You want to say anything, buddy? Say hello. Okay. Spider-Man said hello. Before I let you go, I wanted to have a talk with you about the failed voting rights vote in the Senate this week. Is that okay, Stokely? Can we talk about the failed voting rights act in the Senate? Yes? Okay. In case you missed it, the big Senate voting rights bill, S-1, the For the People Act, failed to gain a procedural vote in the Senate, which means that the actual bill itself never got a vote because there weren't 60 votes to stop the debate on the bill itself. This was all despite an attempt from, stop pressing buttons, Stokely. This was all despite an attempt from West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin to get Republicans to agree on a compromise voting rights bill. As is often the case with Manchin, there's a lot of talk from him on bipartisanship. But then when he gets played by Republicans because, well, Republicans don't give a fuck about voting rights unless they're taking them away from black people, then they're all ears. And I think there's a lesson here, y'all. All the happy talk from Democrats like Manchin about bipartisanship is good when talking roads and bridges. But when it comes to police and voting rights, the things that black people want to see, Republicans just don't care. So this fixation on bipartisanship when it's my life on the line is an insult to black Americans who voted for a Democratic majority and administration last fall. And Democrats like Manchin know this, but they're far more aligned with the Republicans who don't care than the Democrats who are trying to actually deliver on the justice issues that voters voted for in 2020 and want to see progress on in 2022. We knew this bill wouldn't pass, but to engage in theater that the Democrats did here and to still lose all because we won't eliminate the filibuster because of a handful of white, moderate Senate Democrats 
who want to appear more aligned with Republicans than black voters who gave them the majority is the kind of nonsense that will eventually come back to haunt Democrats. Shots and stimulus checks aren't enough. We want justice in 2022. And from Bakari and Spider-Man, that's that on that. We'll see you all on Monday.